Henry Nouwen, on reflecting of the story of the prodigal son, wrote this, I tried to experience myself in the embrace of the father, but I suddenly felt a certain resistance to being embraced so fully and so totally. I experienced not only a desire to be embraced, but also a fear of losing my independence. I realized that God's love is a jealous love. He doesn't want part of me. He wants all of me. I love that line early in his writing, in this reflection. And, and it was this, it's that he felt a certain resistance to being embraced so fully and so totally. I want to tell an adjacent story. Uh, the other day, my son, who's six, he was in his virtual school, virtual class, and one of the teachers kind of gave him a shout out and recognized him for some of the work that he'd been doing. It was totally precious, totally great. And when he was telling us about the story, he got a little sheepish and shy. If you've ever met my son, he is neither of those things. And then we asked him, like, what's wrong? Didn't you like being recognized for the hard work that you're doing? And he said, oh, I just got a little bit embarrassed having all the intention on me. And for a minute I was like, but it was positive attention and he kept telling us at the dinner table, but I don't know, everyone was like looking at me and it was just embarrassing. Maybe there's a story adjacent to this in your, in your own life. Maybe it's with words of affirmation or gifts or there's a specific instance where somebody loved you so extravagantly and so fully and yes, you were happy to receive it, but it was almost a little bit off-putting or disorienting because the love was so pure and so good. Here's the thing that each of these stories gets at, and when I'm looking at it in the framework of following Jesus, of being with God, is that sometimes it's hard to be loved by God, to allow ourselves to be loved by God, to receive that love. Now, of course, our relationship as believers is centered around love, not love as a feeling, but love as a choice, love as something that leads to sacrifice, that leads to care, that leads to pursuing someone. But the thing that we don't talk about often that I was talking about with someone really close to me lately is this idea that sometimes letting God love us is challenging. But even though it's challenging, it is absolutely vital. And we're going to jump into that in this part of our text, in our focus verses in Philippians 2. Before I read our focus verses, you just heard the whole chapter being read. Hopefully you've got a Bible with you, either a print Bible, you're in the Bible tab at dckyalpha.com slash worship, or you've got version on your phone or tablet. But I wanted to remind us each and every week through this series, as we walk through this entire book together as a community, these five things that'll help frame up, that'll help tee up our understanding, reading, and hopefully application of this passage. And we read them quickly last week at the beginning of our time together in the teaching, but I wanted to bring them up again as we get back in a posture to receive. Number one, before Philippians was a book, it was a letter. So if you're taking notes, you might want to jot that down. We'll also kind of copy these for you as a resource. Number two, it was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. Number three, it dealt with local issues, but has global principles. Number four, it was written by Paul, whose life was radically transformed by Jesus. And then number five, it's a unique letter or epistle, and its motivation wasn't correction, but it was love. These five things, if we keep them in mind, it will help us to understand what this passage means and then what it means to us. Before we dig into our focus verses, would you pray with me? 
Jesus, I ask that you would help illuminate this text. Help the Holy Spirit to make it come alive in each of us. God, thank you that as we read about your character and about your goodness, about your instructions, that we're being invited deeper and deeper into a story that's about you, that you so graciously invite us to be included, to be a part of. In your name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so for our focus verses today, we're in Philippians 2, and I really just want to focus on two or three verses, and we're going to start in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. I mean, that's a tall order, right? That first verse that we read, verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ. The mindset of Jesus was the mindset to serve. We read about the prophetic um, proclamation in Isaiah of this coming suffering servant, and it is Jesus. This week on Twitter, I was watching some dialogue between some Christian leaders, and it was really interesting because they were talking about this term which can become very popular and even cliche in our modern-day churches, especially in America, is this idea of a servant leader, right? Maybe we use it to describe volunteers or or key staff in in our church organization. But I love how when we look at the Bible and we look at the biblical account, Jesus, of course, he led people, but he didn't come as a servant leader. He came as a servant. There's a big difference, and that's what this Twitter conversation was about. There's a big difference between saying, I'm here to serve, versus I'm a servant leader. And unfortunately, sometimes being a servant leader means that you're leading people to serve you or to serve your vision, when what Jesus does is so radical for rabbis of his time, and even for leaders and figures that are change makers today, is that he came to serve. That's why we see the majority of his time is spent with those that are hurting, in, in need of healing, those that are sick, in need of peace, and those that are on the brinks of society, those that are destitute and alone. Jesus comes to serve. Now, in these preceding verses, Paul was kind of giving a, a picture of what he believed that the, the body of Christ locally, the Christian community at Philippi, could look like and should look like. And what's interesting is that for Paul, he doesn't describe a call for community in in terms that are necessarily fuzzy or inherently warm or lighthearted, but he takes the call to community very seriously. He's including instructions and aspirations as to how we would live out our faith together. See, because for Paul, you can't live out the Christian faith alone. It has to be done in the context of others. Over the past 10 years of being able to serve students in DC with Chi Alpha, I found that there can be a trend that that can take place or a pattern maybe. Some students come to Chi Alpha and they find all of their social connection there, but don't really dig in spiritually. They don't really examine Christianity as a religion and what those beliefs 
could or should mean for their own stories. And so they go on a few trips, they make some great friends, some lifelong friends, but they don't really move closer to God. It's a partial experience. But then on the other side, and this is more common lately, we see that people view Chi Alpha as that their religious group, their spiritual feeding place on campus, but they find all their social interactions, all their social relationships outside of Chi Alpha and somewhere else. So man, they have a great time serving on mission. They love giving financially um, to our causes. They're engaged in learning scripture um, on Thursdays, but, but man, they're not really getting the full picture either. And for Paul, what he's providing as a rubric, as an alternative picture, is he's saying that at Philippi and for Jesus communities everywhere, it's both and. For Paul, there would be no no way he would even imagine a separation between what we might call spiritual and relational because Paul believed that all spiritual things have relational outcomes. That all spiritual beliefs have a relational expression. And then on the other side of that, he also would believe that relationships between humans are inherently spiritual because we're made in the image of God. I was thinking about this earlier this week, and when we think about early childhood development, maybe you don't think about it as much as I do, right? But it's kind of like, in some ways, a linear progression. You go from being like in the womb to being a baby, to being a toddler, to being a child, to being in elementary school, and you're kind of moving on, right? And and you leave one stage and enter another, although they do overlap. And maybe there's some people in your life who you think maybe they're stuck in a few of those stages for many years ago. But what's interesting about our spiritual lives is it doesn't always work that way. Scripture tells us at the very beginning of the story of God in the book of Genesis that all of us, all people alive right now, all people that have ever lived are made in God's image. That there is something about your wiring, something about who you are that directly reflects the beauty of the character, the majestic nature of the triune God of Father, Son, and Spirit, all three present at creation and all three exerting creativity to create humanity. But then as we respond to what Jesus did at the cross, as we believe in him and confess our sins, we progress, but we, we're, we're now image bearers, but then now we're also adopted into sonship, children of God. Now, I actually love that old school language of adopted into sonship um, because in, in, in Bible times, Old Testament, New Testament, even today, right, we know that men... This is not a positive thing, but a reality. Typically have more of a say, more room at the table. Sometimes they're taken more seriously. That's why I love that some of the renderings of this by commentators that sons and uh, men and women are adopted into sonship, right? Like we're all equal and we all have a place at the table. That's why that verse doesn't typically say like daughtership. It's like all of us are adopted into the primary place of being a child of God with full access to who he is, with a full inheritance. That's why scripture says that, man, along with Jesus, if we suffer with him, we are co-heirs with Christ and one day we'll be glorified with him. But we don't leave behind being an image bearer. We're an image bearer and a child of God. And then what's interesting about this kind of third part of our maturation is that, man, if we're a part of the family of God, 
then we are invited and obligated to be a part of the family business. And what is the family business? Well, 12-year-old Jesus, when he left his caravan, a family road trip, he finds himself talking and discussing things with the teachers of the law. After three days, his parents find him. This is in the gospel accounts. And they're like, where were you? And he says, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house about my father's business? Which is crazy because his stepdad, Joseph, is a carpenter. So he was like in the temple having a religious discourse and he's making claims already of the place that he has in the family of God. He's making claims as to who he really is and what that might mean for those around him. The family business is being collaborators, being co-conspirators in seeing kingdom of heaven come to earth, in seeing people go from being dead to sin to being alive in Christ, to see not, you know, bad people becoming a little bit better, but to see people that are struggling find freedom, find wholeness. But, but here's the reality, and I think this is really specific maybe even to our community or communities like ours on the college campus in cities like ours that are busy. Lots of good things to do with your time. Of course, there's bad things to do, but there's lots of good opportunities. It's we can find ourselves in a dangerous place when we disconnect these three parts of our identity. When we try to do the family business, we try to work, for, work towards the kingdom advancing as we read in Philippians 1, but we do so a apart from being sons. We do so apart from being image bearers. See, it's not like early childhood development where one stage ends and another begins. No, we are all three things at once integrated. We are made in the image of God. You are made in the image of God. If you follow Jesus and you've proclaimed that in your life with your words and your deeds, then yes, you are also adopted into sonship. You're a co-heir with Christ, which is a radical idea. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you. Jesus also interceded for us in the Garden of Gethsemane. He always had us on mind, in his mind. And then what's interesting too is that now we're a part of this this kind of continued ragtag group of people that are imperfect, who are loving and learn to, learning to, to be loved by a perfect God who would hope to invite others into this experience. We're a part of the family business together. And we have to remember all three of those things as we step out and we live as Christ's ambassadors. Well, back to our focus verses, and I think this is really important. In your relationships with one another, verse 5, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And the NIV then it sets us up grammatically to read this next thing. Verse 6, Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. I love a little bit later, it gets into some practical things in this chapter on how this community should daily be kind of living out their ideals. And one of the things before it says in verse 14, you know, don't grumble, don't complain. Let's just cut that out of our community culture. I love how in verse 13 it says this, it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God wants to work in you. He wants to work through you. He has things prepared in advance for you to do. And he is empowering you to walk into the purpose that he has for you. What's really interesting is if we put ourselves in the shoes of these first hearers, these recipients of this letter, their purpose wasn't as related to vocation or career as we might assume ours is. 
In fact, their primary purpose was based in community and in relationship before it had anything to do with vocation or career or what they did to put food on the table. I've been reading this book as part of a training conference called The Celtic Way of Evangelism, and a few of the guys on staff are reading it with me. And what's really interesting is they're talking about these Celtic monastic societies that are set apart so that they could pursue and advance the kingdom and reach those far from God. So unlike their eastern counterparts, which were more like people secluded away from culture, away from the world to be with God, these communities were essentially missional communities set apart not for the purpose of being away, but of being able to strategically be present and to invite people into relationship. One of the interesting things is that they talked about some of these monasteries um, weren't like what we pictured. They had like schools for kids and like a thousand people. And there was very like few ordained ministers. It was mostly regular people following Jesus, living generously. Now some had to do cooking and some were working with the cross, but it was this community And this community found itself living out the purpose of God and doing so in a way that was relational. Yes, people had vocational responsibilities, but I think we do ourselves a disservice. When we think about calling simply as vocation, I think we've addressed part of who we are, but not all of who we are. And Paul does a great job reminding the church at Philippi and reminding us, like we said last week, Philippi was a very patriotic, nationalistic town, community, and place. Um, Biblica.com tells us in their in-depth analysis that actually there was a lot of people who were former uh, soldiers, maybe former governors that would live in this community. And yet, and yet Paul is not encouraging them to focus primarily on making their nation this or that or improving their city at large through this initiative or that. But he's saying, man, I want to focus on the community of God and I want you to be a living alternative to what is broken out there and then for you to invite in. And that's why in the Gospel of John it says that they, the world, will know that we are God's disciples by how we live and treat with one another. The call in Philippians, particularly in chapter 2, is practical instruction on how you and I can live into our identity. In the heading of my Bible, it says, imitating Christ's humility. And this kind of brings us to an idea that I think we could spend a lot of time unwrapping, but it'd be important for us to process, especially at the beginning of a semester. Paul is communicating to us through all this and throughout the rest of his letter that we can't love others in community, in our families, the way we're supposed to, unless we allow ourselves to be fully loved by God. We can't start the day with the idea to love others well without first creating time in our day and framework for ourselves where we need to be loved and cared for by God. I can't treat people... I can't treat people the way that the Lord sees them if I don't see myself the way He sees me. And like we said earlier, it can be challenging sometimes, overwhelming, disoriented to be loved with the love so pure. Maybe it's even embarrassing or as now in wrote, there's a sense of like, I'm embraced, but what about my independence? You and I have the opportunity to live in close relationship, both with people that are close to God and those that are not yet close to Him. 
And yet, our primary instruction, our primary motivation has to be the love that we feel ourselves from God. In other words, community gets unnecessarily messy when people enter into community and they are being loved very well, sometimes for the first time, and yet it gets skewed or distorted if they also aren't positioning themselves to be loved by God first. We've said this in previous messages because it really is our heartbeat is that, man, Community makes an incredible platform, makes an incredible support system for interacting with who Jesus is. But community isn't the end goal. Community isn't Jesus. Community isn't, it shouldn't be an idol. And that's hard, right? Because we typically think of idols as things that are incredibly bad that we've placed uh, in, in a position of honor in our lives. But I find that in my own life, the idols that are the hardest to root out are good things in, in the improper proportions or in inappropriate or unhelpful doses. That's why Bonhoeffer in Life Together says, he, he puts this warning, like if a person can't be alone with themselves and God, then maybe they shouldn't be in community. And then likewise, he says, man, if a person can't operate in community well and with health, then he fears for how they are in their alone and private times. Really what Philippians is calling us to is an integrated life, bringing the relational and the spiritual together, reminding us that our identity is threefold. It's image bearers of God, it's children of God, and then it's people working with God in the family business. How does all this get accomplished? It can only be done by the power of God and by the working of the Spirit. And Paul reminds us in Philippians 2 that it has to be done from the posture of the fact that we are loved. It reminds me of Jesus He's 30 years old, about to enter public ministry, and at his baptism, there's this miracle. A dove comes down, it's the Holy Spirit, and then the words of God the Father saying, this is my son whom I love. And, and that alone is like, man, Jesus is operating. He speaks to the disciples saying, I only do what the Father asks, but he's doing so from the posture of having been loved, not trying to get love. Many of us love and serve and care to get affirmation, to get attention, to get recognition, to get validation. But the gospel asks us to do it the other way. It asks us to first be loved, to see ourselves as the beloved. And then from there, let that overflow allow us to love others well. That's what helps me to love people that might be a little bit difficult to love. I'm not doing it in my own strength. I'm doing it because I've been so lavishly loved. And that's not something to just wrap our minds around at the altar one time, at fall retreat, you know, at, at these kind of mountaintop moments. No, this is daily. Daily, we need to remind ourselves of the love that we can experience because of Jesus. We need to spend time abiding so that we can feel and experience and study and know what that love is, what that love costs. And how that love can form us. And then, and only then, can we embrace and live out community the way the Bible intended.
Let's make this really practical as we close. Maybe there's someone in your life group who you only know their name, you know their picture, but you don't know their story. This week, can I encourage you, text them, schedule an hour, get on Zoom or FaceTime with them. You might be here thinking, man, it's so hard to do virtual ministry. It's so challenging to build deep friendships. Let me tell you, we heard that same thing from students every year in the past 10 years in real life. It's so difficult with my responsibilities, with the distractions of internship, with all of my dreams and goals. At the end of the day, we've got to take responsibility. And for those of us that say, man, I wish we could go deeper in friendship. I wish I could share this with my mentor. I wish my life group leader and I could talk about that. At some point, we have to find ourselves loved by God and love the person enough to just go for it, to just step out and say, you know what? I've wanted this. I'm not going to wait around for it. I'm going to take action. That's what I love about Paul. He prayed a lot, but his prayers were always biased towards action. My pastor, Mark, says it like this. Man, if we want God to do the supernatural, we have to do the natural. This week, as we talk about community, as we're in in our second or third week of life groups and we're living that out together, man, it's you who are going to make that that experience more than just a Bible study over Zoom, more than just a connection for a few minutes once a week. But man, in order to live as brothers and sisters in Christ, in the family of God, it's going to take us reminding ourselves how loved we are and then asking, how can we love others? Well, Paul tells us how, with humility, as a servant, and not looking to our own interests, but looking to bless and serve others. As we prepare to worship, I want you to write down, be very practical here. Man, write down the name of someone maybe in community or in your kind of circle of relationships. Maybe they know Jesus, maybe they don't. But how can you love them and speak to them about your faith in Jesus? How can you grow deeper? Because as Paul instructs us, community isn't optional. Community is essential. But we'll never get an opportunity to love people well unless we first wrestle with the uncomfortable feeling that God loves us. He loves us so pure. He loves us so big, even when we least expect it and least deserve it. Let's sing this song in worship as one way to recenter our attention on Him. And maybe even during the song, He'll give us an idea of who He wants us to pursue as we live out Philippians 2 together.